The scripture for the morning is taken from Galatians, the second chapter, verses 1 through 10, and it can be found in your bulletin on page 6. It reads, Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to try to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted to preach to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle of the, of the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me. They all agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All I asked was that they should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray together. God, we're asking for your help, because even as this book of Galatians reminds us, Uh, What we're encountering here are not human words, not human thoughts, but the very words of God, the very thoughts of God, the very salvation of God given to us in Jesus. And so we need your help to understand, to apply, to have open hearts and open minds. We pray that you would give that to us by your spirit. And so we're looking forward to how you'll do that, how you'll change us. So with hope and expectation, we pray these things. Amen. They were words of hope, powerful words of hope, looking forward to a future day of freedom not yet fully realized. Powerful words of hope, first uttered just down the street, in fact, 50 years ago. Free at last, you know it. Free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Dr. Martin Luther King's immediate focus in uttering those words, of course, was on racial and economic liberty in broader American society. But do you know that his words actually reflect a long biblical tradition, a long biblical tradition 
that reminds us that our relationship with God and our relationship with neighbor are inseparable. That outward social change starts with, in fact, inward spiritual change. In fact, Dr. King there was quoting from an old Negro spiritual, first sung in the fields by Christian slaves. If you look at the lyrics, and maybe you should, go look it up, Google it. It's a song about eagerly awaiting, eagerly hoping for, eagerly living for life, after life in this broken version of the world. A day when one line says, me and my Jesus going to meet and talk. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. There are words that remind us, if you listen to them, that freedom is a cause to celebrate. That freedom, even when you have it in principle, it's hard to live out in practice. That freedom is hard to win, but easy to lose. That freedom is a gift from God. And all these things are exactly at the heart of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate in the passage that we're looking at today. He's relaying to us a little bit of his personal story. He's been doing that in this early section of the epistle to the Galatians. His letter to these dear Christian friends of his whom he labored with and lived with, whom he first presented the story of the grace of God and Jesus Christ in a way that transformed their lives several years before writing this letter. These dear friends in ancient Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. These friends who now were starting to be deceived by false teachers taught a new way of getting right with God, a different sort of way, a way that depended upon you, not the grace of God. And here the apostle is telling a bit of his personal story, how his own life was radically changed, how he got the gospel, the good news of God's grace, that it did not come from me, he said, it did not come from nobody. Looked at that last week. It came from God. And here he continues to tell this story of several years ago, 14 years after his own conversion, a time that he spent in Jerusalem, which was sort of Jewish early Christian headquarters, together with the apostles, Peter, James, and John, making sure that it's clear that he did not receive this message of good news from them as if they had created it and then translated it into his life. No, he got it directly from God, while at the same time communicating that they were still on the same page. As he sums up this interaction with the Jerusalem apostles, he summarizes the purpose for which he was there and having these interchanges and conversations. He summarizes the purpose for which he did this in verse 4. This matter arose, he said, because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy. This is like sniper language. Some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the what? The freedom we have in Christ Jesus 
and to make us slaves, spiritual slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He's talking about freedom that is given in Christ Jesus, uniquely found in Jesus and his good news. But do you notice what he's saying here? The gospel is news of freedom. Freedom that's been purchased for you. Freedom that is given to you. And so preserving the truth of the gospel meant preserving the spiritual freedom that one can have in Christ Jesus. This is a major theme in the book of Galatians. We're going to talk about it again in chapters 4 and chapters 5, only touching on it now. But this is what the Apostle tells us, that in this interaction with the Apostles, they preserved three kinds of spiritual freedoms that the Gospel uniquely offers. Three freedoms. Freedom from good works, freedom from cultural conformity, and freedom to remember the poor. Dear friends, do you want to be free? Today. So, first up, freedom from good works. A lot of people understand, and maybe you too, and you don't even have to be a part of the Christian faith to understand that there's a lot of talk about being saved from our bad works, the bad things that we do, the sins of our lives, the mistakes that we make, and surely Jesus does offer that. But understand what the apostle here is talking about is that Jesus also offers us freedom from our good works. That He came to live and die and rise again to save us from constantly looking to the good things that we do, the performance of our lives, in order to make us feel significant. Looking to your daily performance in life, in the workplace, at home, in your relationships, in your heart, your desires, your imaginations. Looking to those things to make you feel like somebody. To give you meaning in life. To give you a reason to get up out of bed. There's another way. A better way. In the middle of verse 2, the apostle says, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. And then in verse 3, he said, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. Understand what the false teachers were telling the Galatian Christians in this church was you got to do a whole lot more and impress God to get right with God. Jesus is okay, but there's a better way. Get circumcised. Follow what Paul later calls the works of the law. Do some more religious and ceremonial practices and maybe then God will start to really notice you. Clean up your lives and do better so that God will love you better and accept you more. You see, under the Old Testament law, Under the covenant of Moses, circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin, was the visible sign of one's relationship with God and with God's people. 
It was a sign of your salvation, but it wasn't your salvation. Which was what what these false teachers were preaching and teaching to the people. It was something you had to do in order to be saved. Get circumcised, eat the right foods, do the right thing. You notice in verse 6, Paul says, after convening with the apostles and talking it through, they weren't creating the good news. They weren't authoring it themselves. They were simply clarifying it and protecting it. But he says in verse 6, at the end of the day, they added nothing to my message. And what was his message? We've been talking about it the last couple of weeks. It is this. The good news of getting right with God. The good news of the gospel of grace is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. And yet, don't we, dear friends, have the tendency, no, the addiction to needing to define ourselves by the things we do and how well we perform. Tulian Chavigian, who's a pastor and an author, wrote this very helpfully. To divine ourselves, to define ourselves by what we must do, what we must accomplish, and who we must become, that is the epitome of slavery. When we believe deep down that God's blessing depends on how well we've been behaving, don't we wither and groan under the heavy burden of self-reliance? Are you withering and groaning Today, the gospel, he writes, is good news for those who long to be freed from the slavery of believing that all of their significance, meaning, purpose, and security depend upon their ability to become a better you. How much we operate out of this performance mentality. And we don't even realize that it's so normal to ourselves. And you see it most in our motivations. When we're performing before God, before the mirror and before other people, and we feel like we need to make and maintain our right standing with God and with other people by our own actions, our own good works. Dear friend, don't you see it in our lives how much we become motivated simply by guilt, by fear, and by pride? Motivated by a sense that, oh dear, if I don't do this, then what might happen? Called guilt. Motivated by this sense that if I don't do these things or if I don't avoid these other things and God is going to get me or this other person is going to get me or I'm going to hate me, fear or pride, you're better than that. <laughs> A person of upstanding character and morality like you wouldn't do things like that. Dear friends, do you know a God who says, I have done everything. I have already done everything in my son Jesus to make you perfectly beautiful in my sight. To make you perfectly acceptable into my family. To make you perfectly right and righteous in the courtroom of heaven. 
to make you absolutely and unchangeably lovable, though you know you are not. Do you know know a God who says, dear son, dear daughter, you can get off the treadmill and you can rest. You don't need to earn my love. Prove your worth. Work for my blessing. I give it to you as a gift. Through my son Jesus, just open it. Just open it. Dear friends, do you long to be more free? I don't know about you. I don't think I would characterize my mental, emotional, personal life by the word free. (laughs) Living under obligation. What drives the stress of my life, the first thoughts that come to my mind in the morning, which are usually something along the lines of, I'm already behind. You know, you open your eyes and you're already behind. I call that slavery. Or you go to bed and you can't turn it off. Or you're eating lunch and you can't turn it off. Or you're looking around and you're wondering what people think of you and you can't turn it off. And you can't stop running, and you can't stop striving, and you can't start performing. There's another way. There's a freer way. It's the way of Jesus. Freedom from your good works, number two. Freedom from what we can call freedom from cultural conformity. You notice again that in the middle of verse 2, which is sort of the pivotal phrase that Paul gives us in this passage, he says, as I talked with the apostles about what I've been preaching, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. So already we're understanding that he's explaining the good news in a particular cultural context. Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And then in verse 3, he says, yet, but... Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled or forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. You see, circumcision meant everything to an ancient Jew. It was the sacred mark of Jewish identity, a symbol of salvation, as we mentioned. And ever since the days of Abraham... This removal of the male foreskin served as a visible sign that you belonged to the people of God. So much so, in fact, that in the past, if a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, decided to join the people of God, he had to be circumcised, he had to conform to Jewish culture, he had to become a Jew, in essence. And not only circumcision, but together with it, various food laws, what you could and couldn't eat, various ritual practices, various ceremonies that had to be observed and practiced as we talked about before. All these different requirements of the Jewish law that essentially invited people as a condition of being right with God to become more Jewish. And then comes along the story of a new way. That as the Apostle says in Colossians 2, Jesus is your circumcision, so you don't need to do it any longer. That Jesus fulfilled everything that the ceremonial law was pointing to in picture form. 
That we're a people that deeply need a cleansing from God. That we're a people that deeply fail to prove ourselves to God. Things that were meant to point us to the grace of God. And here was that great affirmation. You just don't get the sense from the prose here of how massive and important and historically significant this moment was. This pronouncement, this recognition that God had recognized that, sorry, that God had accepted Titus, an uncircumcised, Gentile, non-Jewish, Greek man, based upon what Jesus had done for him and not because he was more Jewish. Jesus plus nothing else. This message that came out of and echoed out of this engagement, this meeting, this council, that you don't have to become more Jewish or more culturally anything to get right with God or to stay right with God. Because God saves us based upon faith in His Son, totally apart from our works, including the work of making you more culturally other. Which means that the gospel gives us this massive basis for what is often described as cultural diversity. Which is not just a human agenda, we can tell here, absolutely was the agenda of God and an organic outworking and implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Titus was not compelled, again the word has a sense of being forced to be circumcised as a condition of being accepted. We understand that you can be a Jew, circumcised and all, and be a follower of Jesus. You can be a Greek, uncircumcised and all, and be a follower of Jesus. And whomever, whomever God has accepted, and whatever cultural or ethnic or racial background from which they come, we must also accept. Whomever God has welcomed, any gospel community, therefore, must also welcome. Which means if you're a person of African descent, when you come before God and His people, you don't need to stop being African. Or if you're a person of Jewish descent, you come before God and His people, you don't need to stop being Jewish. Or if you're an Asian person, or if you're a white American, or if you're of Italian descent, or if you hail from France, or if you don't know exactly how to describe yourself, but you know you're you, and you certainly do come from a cultural heritage and location, that whoever you are, you don't need to check it at the door to be welcomed and loved and accepted because the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Phil Riken, who's a pastor and author and now the president of Wheaton College, reflecting on this issue and in this passage specifically wrote this. Imagine for a moment what the church would look like today if the first apostles had required Gentiles to become Jews in order to become Christians. If Paul had failed to defend his gospel for the Gentiles, 
Christians would still have to follow the law of Moses down to the last detail. Our salvation then would depend on such things as being circumcised, keeping the Old Testament dietary laws, following the more obscure regulations in Leviticus. The church would be imprisoned within the Jewish culture. Not that there is anything wrong with Judaism as a culture. God never asked the Jews to leave their ethnic identity behind. Please note that. It was fine for them to be circumcised. It was even appropriate for them to follow the law of Moses, provided they understood that they were not saved by it. Reichen concludes, it would be wrong, however, for Christianity to be held prisoner by Jewish culture or any culture at all. Christianity is multicultural as a matter of principle, which is one reason it has changed the world. Part of the secret of the gospel success is that it can be translated into any cultural context. Paul rightly understood that the Gentile question would affect the entire future of Christianity. Do you see what was at stake here? And the blessing that this offers us here, even now, today. This rich gospel basis. For gathering together a community of people from all different sorts of backgrounds who do not need to check their identities at the door, but rather are better for it if they could bring it in together in dynamic community, one with another. In other words, it provides a basis also for cultural unity and not just diversity. Because then, with people that are commonly saved as sinners by grace, not by their works, freed in Christ, we look across to each other and we say, you and I, we are brothers and sisters. We come from perhaps different places and different stories. We bear different wounds, different legacies, different colors of skin, different daily practices, different food in our fridge, different languages on our tongues. And yet you are my brother, and you are my sister, and we are a family. We are a family. And that even before we identify ourselves according to our culture or our ethnicity, then we're invited to understand that the thing that most holds us together, the thing that most defines our identity, therefore, is the freedom that we have in Christ. So that more than anything else, even before I'm this or that, a Korean American or whatever you might describe yourself to be, I'm a person of the gospel, a child of God through Jesus. A basis for rich unity, of family, of diversity. But here's the massive implication that Paul lingers on and that invites us to consider. This doesn't happen on its own, does it? It doesn't happen without what you might call gospel vigilance. You see, because every one of us, or you might say every culture, has its own proverbial circumcision as circumcision was to the Jewish culture. Every culture has that thing or that set of things that if you do not do this or that, or if you do not behave like this or that, or if you do not look like this or that, then you are not acceptable, you are not loved, you are not blessed. What is it for you? 
just based upon your own individual set of funky stuff that goes on in your life and your heart and your values and standards and what you impose on other people or based upon what you bring into the picture, into the community, derived from your cultural background. What is it for you? Whether if it's a sense of financial security or it's perhaps a standard of needing to be married or some emotional expressiveness or maybe it's some intellectual acumen Maybe it's the color of your hair or the kind of hair or how you wear your hair. Maybe it's the way you dress or how much you have in your pocketbook. These things that operate too often in the back of our minds without us even realizing it. When we say to others implicitly by our behavior, because we don't often say it out loud, you need to become more like me to be accepted by me. What is it for you? What is your thing of circumcision? Gospel vigilance invites us to consider it and then kill it. To consider it and then kill it. To grow in gospel community, freed in Christ. Number three, and finally, freedom not only from our good works and freedom from what you might call cultural conformity, forcing everyone to be uniform in their cultural expression, Thirdly, freedom to remember the poor. Verse 10, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's fascinating, friends. Think about it. Here's the Apostle Paul trying to clarify to the Galatian Christians the heart of the good news of God's grace for helpless, sinful people. And then he's describing this conversation and meeting that he had at headquarters with the apostles who served as the history-long foundation of the gospel of grace. And in the midst of this conversation, they say to him, we've clarified a few things, but hold on, hold on. Before you leave, let us make sure that we say this. Don't forget the poor. Don't forget the poor. That it's raised not in the context of sort of spiritual extracurricular activities. It's raised in the context of a conversation about preserving the truth of the gospel. Not that it in and of itself is the gospel of grace at its core, but rather that it is an unavoidable and necessary fruit and obligation and outflow of those that are being transformed by the gospel. As a priority, an essential part of gospel ministry. Remembering the poor. And yes, it's true that the Bible is very clear that every single one of us are rightly described as poor, broken, needy. Because there is a such thing as spiritual poverty. There is such thing as emotional poverty, moral poverty. We are all broken. And that's what humbles us to love one another, no matter what our station of life might be. But the Bible also talks about a special concern in the heart of God for the materially poor in particular. Because something about life in the real world 
without having necessary resources and infrastructure for life, it really does leave you uniquely powerless and vulnerable. And so God steps in and loves. And this is specifically what the Apostle Paul is referring to, echoing what we hear all throughout the Scriptures again and again. That those who love God must, by necessity, also love the poor. That those who know God must have in their lives room to know the poor. First John 3, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but closes his heart against him, how can the love of God be said to be in him? And of course, there are passages like Matthew 25 when Jesus tells a story of the way things will be at the end of all time in history. When He will gather together people and people who are blessed and right with Him and who know Him, He will say, You have loved me well. You have loved me well. When I was in prison, you came and visited me. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was in need, hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And so many people will say in response to him, what are you talking about? When did I clothe you and feed you and visit you and welcome you and love you? And he says this, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. In other words, one of the ways that you know that you truly know me One of the ways that you know that you are being transformed by this gospel is your care of the poor. What then does it mean to remember the poor? What does it mean to remember the poor? It means, I think, carrying the poor in your heart and in your mind. I mean, the most basic implication is don't let yourself forget these dear neighbors. That you have a commitment and a disposition to notice the lives of people. That you don't do as the Levite and the priest did in that great parable of the Good Samaritan who, upon encountering a wounded, near-dead body on the ground because of some greater religious obligation and because I'm late to where I'm going and because I have important things to do and because I've got places to go to which are all true. But because of those things, they step around. They look away. They forget. Or perhaps the forgetting is not just visual. Uh, Maybe it's intellectual. Maybe it's the way, and emotional. Maybe it's the way that we can so often rationalize or even get defensive in our hearts. Uh, Dear friends, do we, upon considering a need or seeing a person's life in its broken state, how often do we start explaining why we would like to but cannot love and serve and care? Defending ourselves, as it were, in a way that has nothing to do with what Paul is saying here in remembering the poor. Remaining aware of, keeping in mind, pondering, praying for, loving those in 
in need. Notice the word that Paul uses here when he says they said uh, only at least uh, we need to continue remembering the poor. And he said it was the very thing I was eager to do. The word there, it conveys intense desire, uh, a deep commitment. Uh, But it's more than just a desire. It can also carry the sense of making every effort, doing your best at something. Not only of serving and giving resources, which is important, dear friends, but giving yourself in relationship. Of actually slowing down enough to get to know a person that comes from a quite different background from your own, economically speaking. And relationship in terms of knowing and loving horizontally, but also fellowshipping. Growing in grace together before a common God. Of bringing people into your lives and maybe even into your homes. And into the community of the gospel. Including people from a full range. So that the community of the gospel and even this church itself. Can be and become even more and more a place. Where people who don't got a lot. And a people who do. Live in intimacy together, calling each other my brother, my sister. What can that look like? How does the gospel free you to love like that? Especially as it begins to give us a new way of being motivated to love in life. A new motivation besides the old ones of guilt and fear and pride that make you smaller, not larger. Give you a smaller heart, not a larger one. But rather frees you to love radically and compellingly. The gospel is a gospel of freedom. Do you know this freedom? Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Will you sing it? Will you live it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for offering the salvation. And even in a room full of people of all different spiritual backgrounds, which we love, different economic backgrounds, which we love, different racial and cultural backgrounds, which we love, It gives us so much hope to know that you offer us a new way of being one. A new way of being in community together. A new way of expressing this great freedom that we have in you. Show us how to do it. Show us how to live it. Show us how to believe it. In Christ's name, amen.